critical mistakes that you see a lot of these these startups make. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think it is the environment across the board is getting more challenging for startups right now from a VC. So the economic turmoil over the last year has certainly made VCs more skeptical, more sensitive to valuation, maybe more sensitive to technology readiness level in some respects. So I do think that what we're observing as we talk to VCs is that they're being more conservative. Um, so I do think that part of that advice that you know many of these climate tech startups and, and startups in general were pursuing the mega rounds. We heard many examples where they started uh, fundraising at 25 million and they ended up raising $100 million. You know, these, these are examples from the last few years. Welcome back to the Clean Techies podcast, where we interview climate tech founders and VCs to discuss all things building and investing to solve the biggest challenge of our generation, climate change. This is episode 78 of the show. I'm your host, Silas Maynard, and thank you for joining us on today's episode. Before we get into the episode details, a note for any founders listening, if you are a founder in the space seeking funding or looking for partnerships, please reach out and we will make any introductions that we can, as well as uh, thank you to our sponsors, Next Wave Partners, for making this show possible. Next Wave Partners are experts in talent acquisition, recruitment, and retention across the climate tech, renewables, and ESG spaces globally. So if your team is growing and you're looking or, or you're looking to make a career change, feel free to reach out to Next Wave at next-wavepartners.com or reach out to one of their consultants directly via their LinkedIn page for them to give you uh, specific help and advice. All right, let's get into today's episode details. In today's conversation, we speak with Eric Turgerson, who is a partner at Silicon Foundry. And what is Silicon Foundry with, with a name like that? You might, uh, I mean, it sounds pretty cool, obviously. So and it definitely is. Uh, in essence, Silicon Foundry is a consulting service that works with corporate VCs to help them find strategic investment opportunities. Um, so their clients are corporates, big places, you know, such as like Walmart or BP or Shell. Uh, it could be examples of their clients. And then some of the things we talk about in today's episode are where the supply chain gaps are in climate tech. Uh, we spoke about how they maintain collaboration throughout their own processes and systems um, in their team. I thought it was really fascinating how they're obviously trying to take the needs of their clients and ensure that all of the people on their team know kind of what things to be keeping aware of. That That's a really interesting topic to me, so that was fun. Um, we also he, he also offered some of his, his advice to startups in the space since he has a lot of he's seen a lot of pitches and he knows you know kind of what the typical mistakes of startups are. Um, he's on the receiving end of it. So it was pretty interesting uh, topic as well. And then there was also a section where he broke down the Inflation Reduction Act and where it's going to be really powerful and where it's going to have a lot of effect. So generally speaking, pretty fully you know fully loaded episode great conversation with Eric. So without any further delay, let's get into the show. All right. Welcome. Welcome to the show, Eric. How are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks. Uh, super excited to have you. I think it's going to be a really fun conversation. I don't believe we've had anybody doing exactly what you're doing in the on in the past. So very keen to get right into it. Why don't you give us a quick introduction to yourself a little bit and uh, you know how you ultimately ended up uh, where you are? Sure. Uh, so just as background, my name is Eric Turgeson. I work as a partner at Silicon Foundry. Uh, and really the easiest way to describe Silicon Foundry is we 
Uh, our clients are big corporations and we help them broadly with their corporate development initiatives. So these are uh, investments in some cases, partnerships, sometimes even M&A. Um, and I, I came to Foundry actually because I uh, have some previous experience in corporate development. So I worked at Qualcomm for a number of years where we were working on uh, both investments, but also acquisitions. Um, and then I took uh, a little bit of a, a new direction, uh, left Qualcomm and joined a battery startup called Ionic Materials, where I was head of business development and got involved with fundraising and uh, a lot of the, the sort of nuts and bolts of what it takes to build a startup in clean tech. And this is when battery was starting to become a very exciting time. This is about five, five and a half years ago. Uh, so I got to meet a lot of the key players in that industry and also in the investment space. We ended up with a pretty large group of corporate and financial investors who put money in the company. And so through that network, I actually met uh, the Silicon Foundry team. They brought a corporate to my, my startup that was interested in investing. And so I started to get excited about what Foundry was doing and eventually joined as a partner about a year and a half ago. And uh, as you would expect with that, I spend a lot of my time dealing with uh, clean tech and sustainability for the corporate clients we have. So that's a little bit on myself. Mm -hmm. What, I guess, led you to be interested in climate particularly? You know, I saw, um, especially with the startup, I think being in, inside of a, a startup in the, the clean tech space really got me excited about the, the changes that were occurring. Uh, if you remember in the sort of 2007, 2008 timeframe, there was a lot of skepticism about climate tech uh, in general and investment in climate tech. And so what I saw with this sort of new generation of startups was uh, a different mindset um, and really a return from venture capitalists in particular to what I would call deep tech investing. So there was a, a long period there where most of the venture returns were being generated by software consumer focused startups, uh, social networking, all the things that we all are familiar with. And what got left behind was a lot of the hard tech um, and deep tech sort of big big picture problems that needed to be solved, including things like battery. So for me, it was uh, an exciting way to get into this new space, even though I wasn't an expert in battery to start, and then to see how that's expanding. So I'm you know with my clients today, we're looking at battery, but we're also looking at uh, so we're looking at traditional lithium ion, we're looking at hydrogen, we're looking at carbon capture. There's a whole set of disciplines and big problems that are being uh, looked at today that uh, I think are being looked at at a scale that hasn't existed in the past, frankly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm kind of curious. Could you talk a little bit more about the difference in mentality between kind of traditional VC and, and climate companies? Because this is something I've always been fascinated by. And I mean, there's still, from what I've seen, a lot of VCs who are only willing to touch software related solutions. So I'm, I'm kind of curious yeah. to hear your your two cents on this. Yeah, I, I it, there was, and again, I'd say there are, that will always be the case. So I think there are uh, an array of VCs who understand that your software startups can be uh, cheap to scale up uh, with the availability of cloud resources. You can launch a startup in, in months, if not weeks, in the in the software space. Um, and I think that the there's a separate group of VCs that also see that that space is very crowded and increasingly challenging for returns. And as I pointed out, there are some big problems, big challenges in the um, in the energy space that still need to be solved. 
And so I think there's a different mentality with those VCs. They understand that the timeframes are going to be longer for their investment in most cases. Um, so you look at a fund like Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which is Bill Gates's vehicle. They explicitly, when they launched that fund, talked about a, a longer timeframe uh, of investment, realizing that some of the stuff they were going to put money into uh, was going to take longer and take more capital. Uh, so I just think it's a different mentality. What I'm encouraged by is um, over the course, especially of the time that I was at the battery company and what I've seen at Foundry, the the corporates in particular, the mandates to pursue sustainability have never been stronger than they are right now. Um, and so I think that's part of the reason why so much attention is being placed uh, in the clean tech spaces. All the corporates that we deal with have made uh, carbon reduction goals very public and they're being measured uh, because of that by their investors. And so we need the, the fundamental technologies to help make that happen. So I think that's a big driver of the shift in the VC dollars for sure. Mm -hmm. I am kind of curious to know, before we get into too much of the nuance of what Silicon Foundry is doing, traditionally speaking, what has been the role of kind of venture capitalism inside of corporates in, in order to try to stay ahead of the curve of technology and things like that? Because to me, there's always yeah. this interesting battle between the kind of incumbent big corporate who's just trying to you know, maintain their margins and keep going. But then there's some companies that are pretty fascinating that are constantly pouring money into the new technology to try to stay ahead of things. Yeah. So could you talk a little bit about that before we just dive yeah. too much into the climate particular? Yeah. Yeah. I think in general, because a lot of our clients are corporate VCs or have a venture function and it's not always climate. It can be related to their core business as well. Um, I would say in general that certainly most corporates would admit that financial returns are not really a critical factor. They don't like to say that uh, quite as openly, but the reality is a small you know, venture investment of a few million dollars, even if it returns five or 10x, is not going to make a big difference for a corporate balance sheet. Um, so I'd say instead, the goal of many corporates with putting money in is to position themselves for a future opportunity with that startup that could be a pilot program or a customer relationship um, or in some some instances it could be acquisition so they could be using it as a, a scouting exercise and a way to um, keep their fingers on the pulse of what's going on um, so I think that's really it's like that the tech sensing tech scouting element is probably the biggest thing that most corporates would say that their VC funds are tasked with um, and then related to scope, it varies. Some corporates very explicitly say we want to keep the scope very tightly tied to our business so that we find, you know, if we find something that can help our business in an incremental way, we can acquire that as an example or be a customer. And then there are some other corporates that have really gone in a different direction and set a clear mandate. I think BP is a good example where their venture fund, uh, even though the primary source of profit for BP is oil and gas, their venture fund is not investing in new oil and gas technology. It's investing in renewables and investing in new climate tech areas. So that's a great example of a corporate where they're using the venture fund in a very different way from what their current corporate strategy is, I would say. Mm -hmm. Is it common at all for corporates to be looking at kind of their operations on a day-to-day -day, day -day basis and saying, hey, you know, are there areas or new technologies that we could reduce costs here? And then maybe if there's not, that's why that's where they focus the venture dollars and the, the R&D funding? 
Yeah, yes, I would say that that's uh, often what, um, when we look, look at business units inside corporates that are giving advice to their venture arms, it's often that they have a problem that they wanna try and solve that they're not able to solve themselves. So we see, I mean, in the supply chain space, logistics, we have some clients and they're increasingly tapping startups to solve some of the, you know, the snarls that have occurred in their supply chain because independently they haven't been able to, you know, solve that, that issue. So I do think that if there are gaps um, that are identified, uh, good corporate VCs hear that from their um, from their business units, and then they try to make investments to help solve those problems. Mm -hmm. Okay. And could you, I guess, from this point, I think it's a good uh, good place to dive a little bit more into the the different areas where Silicon Foundry is helping. Could you talk a little bit? Feel free to go into deep detail about the, yeah. the key areas that you work in. Yeah. So I'd say that the most critical area that I'm involved with right now for several of our clients is large corporations that are seeking to explore uh, climate-based technologies or, or what we call decarbonization tech. And again, it's very interesting because that's a very broad definition as you described. Uh, it can include uh, carbon capture, lithium mine batteries, hydrogen, nuclear, um, you know, you can really uh, even it can even go into things like new materials discovery um, or and uh, another key one we call broadly is circular economy. So that really deals with end of life and how you recycle uh, different types of materials. So I think that um, that the interesting area there is that, uh, at least for me, what we're providing to those corporates is insight around the best opportunities. So we. The simplest way I would describe it is when we work with a member, which we, we have our, our business models effectively an annual membership for these various corporates with our service. We are uh, asking them first for a list of priorities of what they're looking for. And in, as I said, in most cases, many of our clients are looking at investment or partnership related to climate tech. And then we go off and uh, take that list and try and find good opportunities for them. Um, and that could result, as I said, in uh, in an investment. It could result in a pilot program with that corporate. In the current environment, there's, I would say, less M&A because if you can imagine these technologies, these may not be technologies that the corporates need to own, but they want to have access to them. So the M&A component isn't quite as critical in the near term, but I could see it becoming more critical down the line. Mm -hmm. And could you talk a little bit about um, perhaps from a, I guess from a founder's perspective, this I'm just kind of curious to understand, are there advantages and or disadvantages of kind of maybe having a corporate lead a funding round, for example? I'm, I'm, I'm not super mm -hmm. familiar with this. I'd be keen to understand from your perspective. Yeah. Yeah, it is. There are a lot of considerations. So I think firstly, what we have seen is there's often a reluctance from founders to bring in corporates too early. And there's often reluctance from traditional VCs to do so. And the reason for that is the perception that if you have a corporate involved in your deal, that, that they are in control or that they have unique access or unique rights. Um, in my own case with Bionic Materials, my startup, we had many uh, in corporate investors, but we did bring them in later in the process. And we, uh, sought to bring them in at the same time rather than having a single you know, large corporate investor come in 
And the reason for that is the same. It's that can sometimes scare off other competitors or other corporates that might also be interesting to us. Um, so I think that um, it's a, there's a reason why founders can be a little nervous about uh, getting involved with corporates, but we would say that um, as you move into later rounds, so as you look at B round, C round, D round, corporates serve a very valuable role. So they can be, as we said, pilot customers. Um, they can provide, in some cases, we, you know, in my previous company, we did uh, joint development work with some corporates that we had as investors. Um, so there are a lot of skill sets and, uh, and market influence that corporates can bring uh, at the right stage. What I think is clear, at least in the near term, is you don't see a lot of corporates in like pre-seed or seed rounds getting very involved with companies. Um, and we see that see that as well because in these types of technologies, often the value for the corporate, it, the technology needs to reach a certain technology readiness level for the corporate to be interested. If it's just, if it's just a PowerPoint, if it's just a theory, it's very hard for a corporate to come in and add value. That's where the value can be added by more traditional venture capitalists, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Obviously, the I think it's interesting playing to some extent, like playing the game of when who to raise from at what point and and understanding mm -hmm. that process. Um, I do want to just clarify a couple of things. And could you maybe walk through, for example, the process of um, it could be either way, a corporate coming to you and looking for your services and how that process looks. You, know, you talked a little bit earlier about the fact finding and yep. understanding what their goals are, but also from the other side, from um, potentially a, a young startup looking looking to come to you to sure. seek funding. Because I feel like this this intersection where you're sitting is quite interesting. So you could talk a little bit about the yeah. process from, from each side. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the key thing just at the highest level is that our, our customer is the corporate. So that, that's uh, our business model is that we are providing them a service. And for that reason, the startups, we're not seeking uh, any financial incentives from startups. Uh, we're not charging them to be introduced to corporates. So they, they're actually providing the supply, if you will, of ideas. So I think there's a very natural with startups and with VC funds, when we come to the table, there's a very natural willingness to engage with us because they know that we are representing potential investors, potential partners. Um, so that's thinking through the startup side. So we talk to startups all day long, and I was I've had multiple discussions even this week with startups, all the way from seed stage to later stages. Um, on the corporate side, the best example, which is public, that we. Uh, recently announced or was announced by them is, uh, as an example, we are now working with SK Innovation um, out of Korea. And they came to us because they wanted to establish a open innovation outpost. So they wanted to basically create a tech scouting effort in Silicon Valley. And so they approached us and we were in discussions and um, they've come on board as a member just this year. So they recently issued a press release. I'll afford it to you after our, uh, our discussion where it was sort of an announcing jointly with us this open innovation platform that they're going to build in Silicon Valley. So we're going to assist them with that. And that's actually going to be very focused on uh, clean technology and sustainability themes. So it sort of fits with both elements of our story. It's how are we helping uh, a corporate with their tech scouting? And it's directly linked to uh, the emerging trends in clean technology. So that's a good way, I think, of, of describing we spend, you know, much of our time with the corporates, understand their needs, 
And then the VCs and the startups are really the supply side of the equation where we're bringing in new ideas constantly to the corporates and, and engaging with that ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And how, I guess, how do you go about finding or scouting for the yeah. the startups that, that are interesting for this? Cause I'm always keen about this and, and if people yeah. kind of gravitate towards you because of the, because of the middle, middle person that you play. Yeah, I think it's, there's a variety. So there's relationships with venture and private equity funds. Um, there are people that we're constantly in discussions with and what we're doing is going through their portfolio. We have regular calls with some VCs where we just spend time walking through what's what's going on in their portfolio and which connections might make sense. So we often come into that those calls with, hey, we've got this new client. They're interested in these three areas. Um, can you talk? And we understand that your portfolio includes companies in those areas. Can we talk about where those companies are, what the stage, are they raising money? Um, so I think that's part of it. I would say that in some of these emerging spaces, especially as you go in the, the climate tech realm, um, it's still very much a, a nascent category. So we're sometimes going to uh, industry experts. We've done that quite a bit. Um, professors, uh, national labs. We have some relationships with the U.S. national labs that look at these areas. And those people are weighing in on what emerging trends they're seeing. And that might just be trends. It might not even be particular startups. Um, Things like the materials recycling question. Um, We have several clients that are looking at the challenges around plastics recycling. There's many, many different types of plastics, different polymer variations. And some of of the plastics that are out there are just not even recyclable today. So if you look at that topic, there are starting to emerge a set of companies that are looking at that problem. But uh, a lot of the work that's been done in that area has been academic or has been done by uh, universities. So we often have to do that as well. Um, So there's a variety of sources in those instances. And then just to clarify, so if somebody is in this space and they're looking to kind of be on your radar, what what is the typical what are the typical minimum criteria that you you guys tend to, to want to see before you would kind of put somebody in your stack of potential um, potential on the startup companies? side? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, on the startup side, I think it I can say it does vary because the stages, uh, you know, really certain of our corporates, even though I've said it is more challenging to invest early. There are certain of our corporates that still want to see early stage deals. So they want to be tracking these companies. Even if they don't initially invest, they want to have that as part of their landscape. Um, so I don't think there's any tried and true um, phase. I do think that we do better and we're more productive when we're working with startups that already have a known VC or a, or at least a, a VC partner. It could even be an angel group that we're familiar with if they're completely, they're really literally in their seed round and haven't raised capital yet. There are things we can help them. We can make introductions, but certainly for the corporates, it's more challenging to connect the dots there. So I do think that there's sort of a minimum, you know, we don't do incubation, for example, it's not some, you know, it's not part of our business to incubate startups. Um, So if you start talking about those really early stage companies, maybe there's not a fit there, but I, I would say beyond that, most things are open. And of course we have we're talking about more the M&A side of the equation, you know, some of the companies I'm looking at now are very mature, you know, lots of revenue, profitable in some cases. Um, so that's a, the, the other end of the spectrum. Interesting. And we I'm kind of saying, 
private equity. So mo mostly VC, I would say, but we do deal with some private equity as well. Uh, if you're talking about very mature companies of that of that type. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. And then I'm really, I'm also very curious about your role because partnerships is something that's very interesting to me. And I'm, I'm curious about companies' yeah. openness, I guess you could say two partnerships now, especially corporates looking to um, kind of coming together in ways where it's almost like it, it kind of um, multiplies the effort or the, the outcome rather by yeah. putting a tiny bit of effort in. Um, could you talk a little bit about your role there and how you structure these, what types of partnerships yeah. are pretty common, you know, just a little bit about that. Yeah, I'd say that the best example, well, I can't name the client specifically, but they're uh, a similar to our typical, you know, Fortune 500, very large company. Uh, uh, part of what we do for them, we've, we've shown them some new opportunities, but interestingly enough, we've also helped to elevate uh, uh, things which are, so there are, for example, small trials, small pilots that they're doing with startups, maybe in, in a, a single location or a single business line. Um, which at the senior levels that we deal with, they weren't even aware that these things were happening. It was sort of, they were testing something out, testing out a product, testing out a service. And uh, we identified that startup as a very interesting and scalable solution. And so there are several instances where we identified the startup. There have been some discussions previously, but they've been at very uh, low levels in the corporation. And we were able to elevate the discussion to show the promise of what could could happen. So in those instances, not only are we spotlighting a company, we're trying to describe to the senior management of our member or the corporation why this is a big deal. You know, if this is successful, uh, in this particular case, it was related to um, automation of distribution centers. If you can successfully automate uh, one distribution center using this tech, just imagine if you could do it for all of your distribution centers. So that's the kind of, we're trying to provide that insight. And so in those instances, uh, I would say if, if it had been business as usual, that pilot, that trial might've happened and then nothing would have moved forward um, by raising, raising that to a higher level, making people aware of its significance. I think we are able to expand the relationship between the two, between the startup and the corporate. Mm -hmm. And I'm out of, I'm also curious how often does it happen that because of a partnership with the corporate that a startup may maybe they have a particular problem in really scaling what they're doing or just one one part of the technology is not working where that corporate given especially if they're a larger company can make introductions and kind of carry a lot of weight to get them in the door with other other places that can either help them solve the problem or really maybe scale when it comes to to sales. Yeah, I've seen it um, selectively. I think that it's always a challenge. Um, there, there are some challenges with corporates working directly with startups to sort of improve their process. There's the natural skepticism of the startup. Okay, I can't let this corporate um, understand every aspect of my business because they might try to compete with me. Um, but I do think uh, with clean tech in particular, we're seeing uh, corporates that have experience in industrial settings with scaling up technologies. And that's, you know, it could be scaling up production of something, or it could be scaling up a process like a recycling process. If the startup can demonstrate it at, we would call it like a lab or a pilot scale, there are opportunities for the corporates to then come in and say, yeah, if you're going to move this to, you know, uh, you know, thousands of metric tons scale, we're going to have to change some aspects of the process, or we're going to have to 
modify the way you think about it. So I do think those examples exist. Um, they can be challenging, like I said, because of the skepticism that exists with the startups. But I think that that is a possibility. And we've certainly tried to pursue that with some of our members. Mm -hmm. One other thing I'm, I'm curious about is, do you, obviously you have a number of clients and it sounds like it's, it's a membership model, pretty straightforward, but do you have a lot of, uh, do you have a big network of other VCs or, or funds that you tend to, to bring deals to once you find somebody, you know, corporate wants to invest, but obviously there's a kind of a goal to, to get things moving and get that funding round finished. Do you have a yeah. pretty big partnership, uh, a, a desk of partnerships uh, in that space as well? We do. I would say it's, uh, as we said, that there, the relationships with VCs are important for us for deal, deal flow and prospecting and bringing new opportunities. But by the same respect, we know which VCs have interests in which areas. So I was meeting with a startup last week seed stage and i've already taken their presentation and sent it to a couple of vcs that i know would be interested just based on the profile so i do think that it, it kind of goes both ways and that's to your point a lot of what we do is in a sort of a middleman role um but it's a very important role because it's sort of connecting the dots right if it, the the startup that i was speaking to probably would not without our advice probably would not have connected with those vcs or wouldn't have known that they were interested in the in the particular tech area so we do we serve as a bit of a translator you know and things change in the market there's a perception for example certain vcs don't do climate tech um, and that may change so there even is some awareness that needs to be built with startups of who they should go target if they're if they're looking to raise money mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is quite fascinating because obviously, you know, for the corporates, they're focused on what they're doing. A lot of times the executives probably don't even have time to really think about what other ways could be changed, but you have a chat with them and then you start to understand, oh, have you ever thought about this? And, you know, I've had these situations yeah. myself where you just bump into somebody and they're like, oh my gosh, never, never even thought about that. Right. So I think it's a really interesting yeah. model you have here. Um, one thing I'd be curious about is given that it sounds like there's a pretty wide breadth of things and you're dealing with a lot of people trying to understand their needs almost in every conversation, right? So you can connect these dots. Two, two things here. How do you determine what to chase and what not to chase? And then um, well, we'll just start with that one. How, how do you determine what to and what not yeah. to chase? Because there's just probably too many action items after every conversation. Yeah. I think it really, if that is the discovery process of when we talk about a wish list, like if we have a corporate client, and we ask if, let's say, the mandate is venture, corporate venturing. Um, it usually involves, you know, several discussions to get to the heart of what is the best and what is what is the lowest hanging fruit for them. What are the deals that they would be most interested in, and also what deals could they actually do? You know, I think there many corporates have ideas of things they would like to invest in, but there's there's a difference between supply and demand in those deals. And there may be deals that they can't do. Um, they can't move quickly enough to get into the deal if it's early stage, for example. So I think that the best way to figure out those priorities is to have those very sort of practical discussions up front. And then we literally have a list in many cases for our key clients that we're thinking about every week, which is, hey, these, these are the types of companies. Um, and we refine that list. So once we start working through, let's say in the hydrogen space, there's several different uh, investment areas within hydrogen. And we want to know if somebody's interested in hydrogen, which of those areas 
Um, you know, some people are only interested in the distribution problem. Other people are only interested in green hydrogen and the electrolysis, you know, uh, fundamentals. So understanding where they want to fit and what areas of the supply chain they want to be in is another critical one. Cause I don't want to bring them a bunch of deals that don't fit their criteria. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because the role of understanding their needs, it, it to some extent you play a bit of a filter, right. And you just want to make sure that you're getting the yeah. right things. You don't want to be giving them too much or, you know, things that they're going to say, you know, why are you doing this? I, I don't have time for this. Um, the second part of that, which I was really curious about is operationally speaking, how, how do you set it in a way that you can scale this across your team to ensure yeah. that there is a successful outcome every time that you're not missing things, et cetera. Are there any like just kind of um, key items that you guys have for that operation? Yeah, yeah. A lot of it is the backend system. So like, like many people, we have access to a lot of databases, search capabilities, but then internally, one of the things we focused on is how do we capture, and this is something we actually had a, a big meeting on recently internally, was capturing the value of our network. So we use we have internal CRM software that's tracking all of our relationships. And our CEO, Neil, was very clear on this, that we all have our own networks and our own relationships. But in order for Foundry to be successful, we have to share those and, and realize them in ways, meaning... If I know somebody uh, and I, but I don't put that person into our CRM, that's a relationship I have that I can tap into, but nobody else in Foundry can tap into it. So what we've really worked on is exactly that, is making the effort to ensure that all of our contacts are in there, that we're categorizing based on industry expertise. Uh, are they a VC? Are they a startup? You know, pick your category. Um so that's how we scale because we're pretty small. We're less than 20 people. Um, most most of the folks in the firm, we have some administrative folks, but most are partners, associates, principals. So people who are doing the work day in and day out. And um, that scalability is important. What we do offer, I think, with that is um, many times the corporates that come to us, their alternative is, well, maybe I'll hire some, maybe I'll hire a guy in Silicon Valley to do this for me. Um, so picture, let's say even a global uh, Fortune 500 company, they, if this is a tech scouting effort, they might say, well, we'll dip our toe in first and we'll we'll hire one or two people and have them start to look around. And that's just not scalable, just relying on a single person or their relationships, um, or even worse, just dropping somebody from corporate HQ in Silicon Valley and expecting that they're gonna figure it out. Um, so what we're really offering is we're, we're basically saying we'll be an extension of your team and you'll get to leverage all of us. You know, I have primary clients that I work with, but I also assist with other requests and other clients that we have. So I think that leverage and that scalability is really is key for our model. Mm -hmm. I think it's quite fascinating. You know, obviously my, my day, day job is as a recruiter and there's a lot of times you're trying to you have to really pay attention during the team meetings to understand like, Hey, what's everybody else working on? So you can share leads and, yeah. and help. And I'm just kind of curious if you have a method of doing that, obviously a 20 person team isn't huge, but it is still relatively big to, to be able to be aware of what yeah. everybody else is doing. So how do you scale that? You know, maybe some tips for other people in similar types of industries. Yeah. yeah so I think the backend CRM, we use copper for our CRM. That's a way to establish tasks and share uh, details so people can go into copper and find all the relevant details on 
a client and add, you know, add insights. We do a fair amount over Slack as well. If we just talk like real IT tools. Um, so we have channels within Slack that are dedicated to topics. So even now, if I look at it, if I look in hydrogen as a topic area, there'll be new things that people are adding there that I should be aware of. So that's, those are some of the ways that we do it. Um, and then consistent communication with the members. So with most of our members, it's a weekly or biweekly sit down um, where we're getting feedback. And then of course, within our team, we have, you know, multiple times per week sync ups, both at the senior levels and also at the group level. Um, and we have, I guess the final thing I'd say is we do have a process we call SOS, which is when we do have a request that we need assistance with. There's a whole process for how we route that mm -hmm. to everybody in the firm so that we can make sure we're leveraging relationships. And it's often quite exciting when you, you know, if it's a, a new space or if it's a tech area that I haven't had experience with, one of the first things I might do is reach out to the team to see what their experience is. And often we'll, that'll start the genesis of an idea. We'll find an expert or a contact that we can start the process with. Um, so it's kind of organic, but certainly those systems are very important to the integrity of the, of the scaling. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating because I think, you know, the way technology continues to enable people, I think that humans really have a, a more and more important role to play in the work of all these things is being really, really attentive because you think about any meetings that happen that, you know, every word isn't recorded, it's over a, over a call or some type of thing. You can't just look back on an archive and feel like, hey, you know, I think we talked about this at one point. You can't just look it up in Slack and see, oh, here was that thing we talked about, yep. right? Because it wasn't a message, right? And it's very difficult to to remember those things because at the time you're trying your best to pay attention, but you don't know that you're yep. going to need this knowledge in three weeks or whatever, yeah. right? Um, so I kind of find that fascinating. One thing I'm, I'm a little bit curious is about with your clients and perhaps uh, maybe with the corporates and then on the, the startup side, what are you seeing from a talent perspective? Are a lot of these, especially as relates to the climate side of things, are a lot of these companies struggling with talent in any particular way? Are there any kind of insights that you've seen from, from working on both sides of the table here? Yeah. Uh, yeah, a couple of things. I mean, I would say very specifically, some of the markets that I'm looking at have never been tighter from a talent perspective. I'd, I'd point a battery is probably the best example. So in inside of clean tech, anything that's tied to battery, uh, new battery development or scale up, there's going to be a shortage right now because there's such a demand. Especially, I would say it very simply for if existing and next generation lithium ion battery types, um, expertise, technical skill in that area, those people are in high demand. And so even even a few years ago at Ionic, we would still struggle to find the right people with the right expertise, because it's a very specialized skill set. In many cases, people with experience are, you know, have multiple offers in that space. So that would be one. I would say um, in general, um, across all clean tech categories, you're finding similar things. So areas like hydrogen, which I brought up, um, have been around for a very long time. People have been looking at hydrogen and hydrogen fuel cell tech for decades. Um, and it has, it, for many years, it was almost strictly an academic subject for, for a lot of people. Um, but as companies emerge and are founded, then the demand for those people with expertise to transition to the private sector is certainly there. Um, 
And then on the flip side, we are seeing, obviously, from, you know, we have clients that are not uh, focused on sustainability and climate tech. And as you're seeing what you see in the press today, there's been uh, softening of the, the market and we see layoffs within some of the large software players, big tech layoffs almost weekly. Um, so I think that's a slightly different exercise, which is somebody who's, uh, and again, it varies by geography and a few other factors, but uh, in general, somebody who's positioned as a software developer, for example, um, might have a harder time getting a position today than they might have a year and a half ago. And that's probably what you see in the recruiting space. Um, but again, it's going back to the theme in the, of climate tech. I think anybody that's in a technical skill set or an adjacency to climate tech, the market is there. And that things like the Inflation Reduction Act are just going to continue to provide stimulus for that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's quite interesting to see what I've noticed is that it's it's almost as though tech in general was relatively flexible on what your background was particularly. But now with it really yeah. in climate being very science focused, you need to have a very particular skill set and people have a hard time, you know, necess- not, it's not necessarily easy to transition into a, an adjacent yeah. industry. Um, you mentioned a little bit, just, just a little bit ago about the IRA. I'd be keen to understand from your perspective of this, because I'm assuming there's a lot of corporates looking into these uh, the effects of this. Could you talk a little bit about the key items worth noting here, what's going to really accelerate and just your general outlook uh, based off of the passing of, of this? Sure. Yeah, I think the biggest positive, obviously, is we see it as a major uh, benchmark in U.S. climate policy. I think people weren't clear that it was going to pass, frankly, or there was some surprise uh, among the ranks that it actually made it through because there were some bumps in the in the road. But I do think that everyone does agree that on the surface, um, it's a a major achievement and a major, as I said, a major uh, form of stimulus. Um, If you look at the way it's going to be implemented, I think the challenges that people have highlighted is that it's sort of, there's still a lot of, um, there's a bit of a lack of direction of where, where we think it's going to head next. And there's uh, an attitude in the bill that it's not trying to pick winners, if you will. It's not targeting. And if you look across all the various uh, tax incentives, they hit a wide swath of different technologies, again, carbon capture to hydrogen to um, that direct battery manufacturing, pack level battery uh, assembly. So it's hitting a broad range of technologies, which are all very different. And we don't know which of those are going to be the most successful in the long run. So um, there is some concern that it's not focused enough on uh, maybe or not maybe making a bet on certain tech like lithium ion that we that we believe is inherently scalable and is going to succeed. Um, but on the whole, I think everyone who looks at it says, and I the clients that I work with, everyone agrees that at least for the next you know half decade, it's going to provide a very meaningful stimulus for these segments, and what it amounts to in most cases is cost competitiveness. So ultimately the way it's being implemented, it's trying to find a way to make these emerging technologies more cost competitive through federal subsidy or federal credits. So I think in that realm, it it could help to accelerate adoption because if the key constraint for adoption of a new tech like a a hydrogen tech is the cost, um, then this is a way to help defray that in some way. 
I think it's quite fascinating. I actually haven't really heard that um, take on this before, that it's not necessarily picking winners. I think that this is a lot of people tend to be, especially really sciencey people are like, oh man, like, why did they do that? That's going to, you know, everybody's going to focus on that. Nobody's going to worry about the other thing. That's really cool. And that could be interesting. Obviously, I'm not super familiar with the nuances of this, but um, that is interesting to hear that perspective. Um, I wanted to... And the other thing... Mm -hmm. Yeah, the final point I'd make, too, that I've seen, at least in the analysis, is it's really more like previous environmental proposals have been more sticks and less carrots. Mm. So it's been ideas around like taxing emissions. Um, Mm. So basically creating negative consequences for emissions. And this, if I understand it correctly, the IRA is effectively all carrots. So it's all about incentives for uh, positive decarbonization. And it's basically avoiding emission taxes and other things that have been very unpopular in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is interesting. That's a that's interesting uh, nuance that's a little different. Um, what I wanted to ask you about, given that you have a kind of a, a really wide range of types of people you work with, in the climate tech supply chain, this could be anywhere that you're interested in, just really broadly, I want to make it a pretty yeah. broad question, is within the climate tech supply chain of something, whether it's energy or capture, carbon capture or something, where do you see a lot of opportunity or problems to be solved? Um, places that are really like there's a big gap here in the supply chain and you're just excited about that in general, but kind of aside yeah. from, from your clients as well. Yeah, I would say the, the areas, I'd say relative to what our clients are looking for and their problems. So let's say many of our clients are in, by virtue of their size, they're in industrial businesses. Um We've worked in the past with mining companies. We've worked with heavy industry, people who make chemicals. And they've made, as I said, very significant promises around decarbonization of their of their operations. And so the nature of what they do is very carbon intensive. And it's so the challenge of reducing carbon meaningfully is therefore very high. Um, so with that in mind, I think one example that we've seen a lot of interest in is carbon capture, but think of it as direct carbon capture, um, not from the air. So there's some companies like Heirloom and others that are uh, working on tech for taking the air around us and extracting CO2 from it. But then there's another class of companies that are much more focused on direct capture from industrial. So think about a factory that has a pretty hefty CO2 emission. If you can attach uh, this technology to that factory, you can extract CO2 at the source uh, rather than trying to extract it later from the air. Um, so those types of technologies are a way for direct reduction of significant emissions. And so I, I get excited about that. It's also a space that ironically, had you know, there have been pilots, there have been companies, but it hasn't attracted up until now a huge venture following. Now, now it is starting to get that. There's a group of venture capitalists that are pursuing this direct air capture, which is, um, a, in my mind, further out and potentially more costly. But this industrial capture of CO2, I think, is one of the most interesting areas. And if I'm a, a big company that has a lot of emissions from factories and manufacturing, it seems like a pretty logical way to help solve that problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's so many interesting things with especially the utilization of carbon, not just capturing and putting it in the ground, like so many yeah. cool things people are doing. 
And to me, it's things like that that just really blow my mind when they can find a way to not only help them uh, prevent pollution, but also usually kind of have some type of offtake to some extent that can actually be yeah. make make the cost a little bit better, right? Um, yeah, and that's that the, the cons. You know, everyone got caught up with the idea of just sequestering. You know, the idea you take CO two and and store it somewhere forever, uh, or store it in a you know in a underground effectively, and these these companies you point out are actually figuring out ways to embed the CO2 into products, which I think is uh, where it then remains for a, a very long period of time. Um, and I agree, that's a great way. And then in the end, you potentially have an input to a product. So you have a way to make financial sense out of the equation as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's really fascinating. To me, the, the financial innovation has been one of the key items that I think is really, really cool about, about climate mm-hmm. technologies. Um, I think something that'd be really helpful given your 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 role would also be any advice that you have for companies seeking to get funding uh, around kind of how they pitch their pitch decks and then maybe critical mistakes that you see a lot of these these startups make. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think it is the environment across the board is getting more challenging for startups right now from a VC. So the economic turmoil over the last year has certainly made VCs more skeptical, more sensitive to valuation, maybe more sensitive to technology readiness level in some respects. So I do think that what we're observing as we talk to VCs is that they're being more conservative. Um, so I do think that part of that advice that you know many of these climate tech startups and, and startups in general were pursuing the mega rounds. We heard many examples where they started uh, fundraising at 25 million and they ended up raising hundred million dollars. You know, the, these, these are examples from the last few years where there was so much demand for whatever they were doing that the VCs were saying, well, what if we gave you more money? What would you do with it? Right. Um, I think that that behavior has changed a little bit. Um, we saw big players like SoftBank throwing a lot of money at startups. And we saw obviously with failures like WeWork and others that that's not always the secret of success. Um, so I do think that the startups are having to think harder about what what's the right amount that they actually need, what are the proof points that they would need to show uh, before they can raise money again. So all those things have come back into the, the fold a little bit more. Um, but all that being said, my other advice would be there, if you look at the statistics, um, there was has been a huge tranche of VC and private equity money raised, which is still not deployed. And those players have to deploy it over a certain time scale. They might be pausing or taking a conservative approach in the near term, but they can't sit on the sidelines forever. So I do think that the thing that's going to help both in clean tech, but in VC in general is this overhang that we call it. That's the money that has to be spent, the money that has to be invested. Um, it's still there. And uh and I think any any statistic, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but any statistic that you look at would say that the last couple of years have probably been the biggest fundraising years for private equity and venture ever because the market was on a tear. And so all that money uh, that's now available and has been committed needs to find a way to start up. So I think that's a that's a positive for sure. It's kind of interesting the because because of the speed and the I guess you could say excitement for people to to fund these to to put money into, into these funds, it's almost as though you know as the recession comes in, it's like the the mentality has changed, 
from when the money was received, right? But at the same time, they still have to yeah. now go deploy it. So there's some benefits to it, but also, you know, the 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 mindset of the purse holders is is a little bit different on putting the money and making yeah. the checks to the companies. Um, you you commented on something I thought was interesting, which is you said a lot of these companies got significantly more money than they were anticipating to raise, right? And do you see how did that cause any problems among kind of in their ideas around, hey, you know, we can be maybe they're not being as frugal or they're not cutting their burn as much like any other like kind of downfalls that came off the back of that? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the biggest example I can see of how it can go wrong is what we saw with the SPAC um, financing phenomenon. So that's a great example of lots of capital being raised, chasing startups, and of course, offering them a path to a public listing. But as we all know, many of the, and many of those SPACs are down 95% um, because the companies that were SPACed were really not ready to be public. They didn't have significant revenue or they were er too early in their development to be a public company. And we've seen this time and time again. We've seen companies like Nikola where there was actually fraud <laughs> involved <laughs> along with others. And there will be others that I'm sure will be discovered. Um, so that's probably the best example of how the, and of course, SPACs just aren't occurring anymore as far as we can tell, right? Mm -hmm. So that was a, a momentary blip for a year or two where a lot of these companies had access to money in the public markets that they could never get access to. And it's gone about the way we'd expect. Now they have, and the benefit for some of them is they have a lot of cash, but they're a public company, they're stocks trading for pennies. And so what's the future for those? Maybe they go private again, I don't know. Uh, that's probably the best example I'd use of how far it went in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. And then one last key thing, I know we're running out of time here, but I'd really be keen because you sit kind of in between traditional Silicon Valley and then climate tech. What is your view on the different opinions in the space and how people kind of treat it? Because I know that, at least from my perspective, a lot of people ran into climate tech as soon as they saw this being big and all these big funds being raised. And oftentimes these are the funds that they're only looking at software because that's all they understand. They're afraid of hardware, et cetera. Yeah. So like what has, has have people who've jumped in matured quickly? Are they still making mistakes from your perspective? And then yeah. what's the Delta between these two mentalities? Yeah, I think it's tough. So I, I, I wouldn't name any specific names, but trying to dive into elements of clean tech. So we have companies, uh, corporates that we're working with that are looking at nuclear, you know, various uh, small reactor nuclear and, and emerging uh, tech in that area. That's a great example of a, a tech area that venture probably has ignored for the last 50, 50 years <laughs> uh, because it wasn't seen as a, uh, a an area that was suitable for, for VC investing. So I do think that that shows how and there are experts, there are people who have strong opinions about nuclear and how it could be made uh, into a very viable, renewable energy source. Um, but I don't think you could be a VC that was doing software a year ago and suddenly become a nuclear physicist, literally. Uh, so I think that's probably the extreme example. Um, with other things like battery um, expertise with scale up and other factors might come into play. But you, you were, I mean, there's a fun... There's some fundamental science that goes into many of these uh, bets, and and in each area, the science is different. So the science in hydrogen is very different from the science in a lithium ion or a next gen lithium ion 
battery chemistry. So I think it's a it's a, a a tough it's a tough transition if you were just doing traditional software investing to move into that field. And I think that's why you see the folks that are um, positioned in many of the key climate funds are PhDs. They're experienced with previous the, the I would say the previous decade of climate investing in some way, shape, or form. Um, so I think that that's what you're going to see. I, there are I've seen some VCs who are looking at uh, climate, what I call like climate adjacent. So like you could have a company in the supply chain space that's a software play, mm -hmm. but the argument yeah. is it's helping to reduce emissions by improving logistics. Or there are some companies that are their job is to calculate what the emissions are in a supply chain. Those are things where you could imagine that expertise with software could be it could have value, but a lot of the other categories that are physical science based. I think it's going to be tougher. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it, it is interesting to see this because obviously if they need a particular type of expertise, you know, a PhD, for example, there's only there's only so many of these people around and sometimes yeah. they're probably very difficult to find. So I can assume that there's probably I'm assuming there's a number of like a, almost an insiders club of uh, the funds that say, hey, hey, how did you guys invest in that? Who did you talk to? Who to help prove it? And then yeah. per perhaps, I'm not saying this would really be the case, but it's perhaps that you have a lot of weight on these investments riding on probably very few people who have deep expertise. And this yeah. is, to some extent you worry, hey, is it too centralized? Maybe, maybe there's going to be some very bad bets across the board, right? But yeah. obviously, you know, there, there's a number of people in the space. So I'm assuming it'll be, be safe enough, but um any final thoughts that you want to leave us with? I know we're, we're out of time here, but any final things you sure. want to wrap us up with? No, I, I mean, I guess I hopefully the one of the key messages is as we think about climate tech broadly, I'm very bullish on the trends, right? So we have the IRA in place providing subsidy. We have tons of VC and private equity money that's now willing to um, invest in this category that maybe was even if you looked five years ago, they might have said, well, I'm not sure if I'm willing to do that because I know what happened in 2007, 2008. A lot of the climate tech companies went bankrupt. Um, I think we're getting this is like the second chance for us a little bit. The, the climate uh, issues have not gotten better. Obviously, the awareness and the importance for corporates has only increased for this. I think that's the other fundamental difference I see from what we saw in 2000, 2007, 2008. Many corporates were making promises, but it was kind of a marketing gimmick um, as it related to either carbon reduction or long-term targets. Um, the big One of the biggest trends that's emerged is the big institutional investors like BlackRock um, putting sustainability as a key pillar of how they invest. And so the idea is if you're a publicly traded company and you don't have a meaningful sustainability strategy, you're, you're going to struggle with your investor base. So all those factors, I think, are going to uh, contribute. And that's that's why I'm excited. Almost every new client that I talk to is in some way looking at climate tech or uh, climate tech adjacency. So that shows me that there's a real trend there for sure. Yeah, this has been really fascinating. I think it is interesting to see how things are changing and kind of the combination of, I mean, there's a lot of factors, right? But especially the push on ESG and then the SEC's announcement to, to change this has probably kind of solidified these things as if they can't really go away. So perhaps, uh, you know, heading into a recession, a little bit of a different sentiment from, 
the companies in the space because there should be continued funding because it's a long-term commitment yeah. from from people and it's not just greenwashing, right? So this is it is an interesting time to me to see this and um, especially to see, you know, additionally, all the other technologies that are coming out of Silicon Valley, especially I'm particularly yeah. interested in, in AI and things of this nature that can kind of come together and pair to make some really interesting technologies in the future. But it's been a pleasure having you on and um, really excited to see what you guys are doing and continue to follow along and uh, definitely um, see the impact you continue to make. Great. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thanks for listening to today's episode, everybody. If you enjoyed this, please do share it with somebody who might find it valuable, especially to other founders who are, who are growing their businesses. Uh, there's a lot of, I think, interesting tips that could be mentioned uh, that were mentioned in here that, that might be helpful for them. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode as well, we do appreciate a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps grow the reach of the show. We recommend that you reach out to Eric, connect with him, learn more about Silicon Foundry directly uh, on their website. And then if you are first time here, please do um, tap the bell to subscribe and join us on this journey as we continue to interview um, folks in the climate tech space, whether that's VCs or founders, and then just follow this, follow us here if you enjoyed this. A quick note on our next episode it is a conversation with Matt Ward, who is the founder of the Forward Accelerator program. Um, doing pretty interesting things honestly i really really enjoyed this conversation it was much kind of less structured than some of my conversations have been and um what he does is he works a lot with climate tech startups in the uk europe and israel to get traction so a key focus is is um landing a pilot or a key focus of you know their their help towards founders is helping them get clients or um land a pilot project getting them some traction so that they can then get introduced to capital and then get them out. So it's a very, very punchy type of program. Get them in, get them some traction, get them introduced to other investors and help them raise. And the thing that's really different is they take a very limited number of folks on in their program so that they have bandwidth to help them all very intimately rather than some of the bigger accelerators, which are really just essentially sourcing deal flow for their fund, and that's all they're that's all they're focused on. So it's it's more it's not necessarily about the founder. Um, so really really interesting conversation. Stay tuned for that. And thanks again for joining us on Clean Tech is a podcast. We will see you next time.